Good morning. Today's scripture is from John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. It's so good to worship with you, friends. It's good to be together as the people of God. And again, thanks to those of you who are joining us online. If I haven't met you, I'm Matthew. I love serving as the lead pastor here. And I especially enjoy preaching God's word. And... Though I do it often, there's not a Sunday that goes by where I don't walk over here and think, I need God's help. And we need God's help. So let's ask him for it right now. Lord, apart from your spirit, even as we were singing a few minutes ago, we can do nothing. I can't preach your word. And with your people, none of us can understand, let alone apply your word. And so... I ask right now that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. For in your word there is life and joy and peace. Father, sometimes, many times, you say things to us that are at first not easy to hear. You bring words of correction, rebuke, admonition, exhortation. And so we ask, especially on this Sunday, Lord, that, that you would deliver us from coming in here and in any way demanding that you just make us feel better about ourselves. <laughs> you are God. We are not. We do not want to come here to use you to increase our self-esteem, but rather to submit to you and listen to you and trust you and believe you and obey you that in so doing, our joy may abound. So help us with that, we pray, Lord. I thank you for all the young people that are here. 
another unique dynamic of the COVID season. I especially pray that you would help them to retain and remember one thing from your word that makes a difference in their life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do many of you enjoy doing home improvement projects? Some of you? I know some of you do because I get to talk to you and hear about your projects and and discuss my own. Uh, There's a pretty important step in most home improvement projects, at least I found this, and, and that is the demolition step, right? You know, imagine trying to put a new deck on the back of your home, but, but you don't ever remove the old deck. So when you're done, you have like a new deck sitting next to a crumbling old deck. Or imagine, you know, trying to put in a new kitchen, but, but instead of removing the old cabinets first, you just, you just throw up new cabinets on top of the old cabinets. That wouldn't work very well. If, if you're going to replace a roof if you're gonna replumb the master bathroom, if you're, if you're gonna reseed your lawn, what do you first have to do? It's not rocket science, right? You have to scrape off the old shingles, you have to remove the old plumbing, try not to cut yourself on the copper, and you have to kill all the existing weeds. That demolition is a necessary step. We have to undo something before we can redo something the way we want it to be, the way it needs to be. And friends, that same principle holds true spiritually. Okay, think about this. But before Jesus can make us into who he created us to be, he first has to cleanse us from what we have already become, right? But we prefer to think otherwise. We we like to think of Christianity any of us can fall into this trap. Knowing and following Jesus as as something you simply add into your life, season on top of your life, layer like the cheese on the sandwich of your life to discover eternal happiness. You know, we, we hear Jesus came to give us the wine of God's favor and God's blessing. And so we say, that sounds great. Who wouldn't want you know, a little favor and blessing from God on the side. That, I'll take some of that. So, so Jesus, why don't you just back up your favor and blessing delivery truck over here and, and just give me a couple cubic yards in my life. And then we tell stories that go like this. You know, I, I used to be one of those sad, miserable people, but, but then I discovered a little secret. All I needed was a little Jesus. I just needed a little Jesus. And, and now these wonderful Christian people are telling me that, that I can have a relationship with God free of charge because Jesus accepts me just as I am. It's about time someone did. <laughs> Think about that, friends. It, is that actually true? Or is something wrong with that view of the Lord? You know, if you've been reading in John up to this point where we are this morning, it's very clear that Jesus came to fill our hearts with a joy that never runs dry. We saw that at the, the wedding of Cana earlier in chapter two. And John, the, the author of the fourth gospel, 
just flat out tells us at the end of the book that he wrote this whole book so that we might believe Jesus and have life or joy in his name. But friends, if we're going to experience the life that Jesus alone can give us, we first need Jesus, not just once, but over and over and over again to purify our hearts and to cleanse us from, from sinful desires, sinful thoughts and deeds that, that prevent us from experiencing the joy of living for Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. That there's a demolition work, a cleansing work necessary in our souls. And, and that repentance begins at conversion and it continues for the rest of our life. We, we never, in other words, get past that until he takes us home. And if you're familiar with the other uh, synoptic gospels, you, you might remember that they all include a, a temple cleansing similar to the one we just read about, but, but they actually put it at the very end of Jesus' ministry, you know, d- d- right before he's crucified. But John locates this temple cleansing at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And, and some of the details of the two are, are distinct enough that, that I think the most natural conclusion is that Jesus cleansed the temple not once, but twice. And I think that John chose to report the first cleansing at the outset of Jesus' public ministry because he recognized that it teaches us something. It makes a a profound statement for us about all that Jesus came to accomplish through everything he was about to do. So what's that? What's the statement? What does Jesus cleansing of the temple and John reporting it at the beginning of his ministry tell us, teach us? Well, quite simply, friends, it reminds us that Jesus came to cleanse our hearts. He came to cleanse your heart. That, That he might make you, that he might make us a dwelling place fit for God. And just like the wedding at Cana at the beginning of chapter 2, the the cleansing of the temple, it's an acted parable. Okay, so let's think carefully about what Jesus physically did here, okay? What that teaches us about who Jesus is and finally, why we should trust him to accomplish the same sort of spiritual work in our hearts today. Okay, that's where we're going to go. Point number one, what do we see here about Jesus? As the obedient son, Jesus was zealous for God's honor. He was zealous. He was passionate for God's honor. Look at verse 13, chapter two. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That is not a throwaway line. (laughs) So I love to say there there are no throwaway lines in the Bible because it's inspired by the Lord. These words are his words. So that context that John establishes right there in verse 13 is significant for at least two reasons, okay? Very quickly, first, it teaches us that Jesus is the obedient son. He's the obedient son. Just a little bit of background here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover 
If you're not familiar with that, it commemorated the night. It was an annual feast that looked back on the night when the Lord delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he did that by killing all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but sparing all the firstborn sons of the Israelites if they had painted the blood of a lamb over the doorway of their house. The lamb died so the Israelites wouldn't have to die. And God didn't want his people to forget that because we're good at forgetting. And so he instituted the Passover festival and commanded them to keep it. And so by going up to Jerusalem for the festival, Jesus wasn't just checking a religious ritual box, friends. He was demonstrating once again that he came to do and be everything that the people of God from Adam onward, we all fail to do and be. What's that? to obey the law of God. He's obeying the law of God by going up for the festival. He's keeping the law of God on our behalf. Here's the second thing, verse 13, by way of context, clues us into. It reminds us what Jesus' obedience would ultimately require of him. Think about this. Okay, John actually mentions three different Passovers in his gospel. You've got one at chapter two, you have one in chapter six, and you have another one at the very end in chapter 13. And so the entire record of Jesus' public ministry, it's, it's framed like, like a picture frame. It's, it's bookended by Passovers. It's the context in which everything he does goes down. Why does that matter? Because after three short years, Jesus became the Passover sacrifice. The fulfillment of the festival, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So at the very beginning of this section, John's reminding us in a single verse that Jesus walked in perfect obedience and Jesus would soon die for the disobedient. He's pointing us in that direction because it's the only way sinners like us can be made right with God. And yet, notice G Jesus didn't he didn't move through the temple complex during Passover in some sort of you know, future trance, just kind of freaked out and spacey and disconnected because everywhere he sees a lamb, it's like, that's gonna be me. And he, he wasn't in a trance, fixated on the future. He, he walked into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and he was filled with fury. He was angry. Because it was a sacred place. It was God's place. It was the place that, that the Lord had chosen among all the nations on earth to make his presence known. That's what the temple was. It was a place of worship place of prayer, a place of communion between God and man. Only, only Jews were allowed to enter the inner courts, but, but the outer court was open to Gentiles too. And for them, it, it was a taste of the Lord's promise. In Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And yet when Jesus walked in that day during that Passover week, the place looked like Costco right before a snowstorm. Think about that. Look at verse 14. 
In the temple, Jesus found there those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now we have to remember something, okay? The law explicitly commanded worshipers of Yahweh to not come before him empty-handed, okay? So in that sense, oxen, sheep, pigeons, temple coinage, all, all of that was necessary for keeping Passover. There was nothing wrong inherently with, with furnishing people with sacrifices or money for an offering. But the great injustice, friends, as Jesus helps us see in verse 16, is where they were doing those things. Because they were turning the house of God into a house of business. They were taking a sacred place and, and treating it as common. They were taking what is holy and treating it as ordinary, displaying a profound lack of reverence for the Lord and love for his people. And it wasn't a minor oversight. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, wow, so, uh, you know, sorry, Jesus. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, we have no idea how all these cattle and sheep and jars of money and I don't know how this got in here. <laughs> it wasn't an oversight. It, it reflected their spiritual priorities. And, and Jesus was rightfully angry. And, and if you look at verse 15, so we read what he did in response. If, if this comes as a surprise to you, friend, then, then you should consider, you should question whether you really understand God's jealousy for his glory. Jesus makes a whip and he drives out the flocks and the herds. He, he pours out the coins of the money changers. He, he walks up to the tables and, and says, could you please arrange for a moving company to get these out of here in a couple days? No. He grabs them. Don't worry, tech guys. <laughs> and he flips them over. I mean, he's, he's demoing the place with violence. He orders the pigeon sellers outside. Why? Because they were defiling his father's house. What does he say? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't do it. Stop it. Which prompted his disciples to remember the words of Psalm 69.9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Friend, I, I wonder, I want you to think about what, what is it that consumes you? What consumes you? What, what dominates your thoughts when, when you're, you're lying in bed at night trying to fall asleep? What, what floods into your mind when you first wake up in the morning? What consumes you? Jesus, the obedient son of God, was consumed with a holy passion for the honor of God. He, he wasn't just willing for God to be honored or, or open for God to be honored or, or delightfully applauding from the side if God would be honored. He was zealous for the honor of God. 
It was the governing ambition in his soul. It's what he wanted more than anything else. He wanted his father to be known and loved and feared and praised and magnified and exalted and treasured and worshiped above all other gods because Jesus knew that no one else was more worthy than his father. That's what he wanted. It's what he was chasing. Now, you parents know what it's like when, when your kids set their sights on something, right? Just, hey, mom, what? Uh, not yet. Hey, mom, you, it, it just won't give up, right? We do that as adults, don't we? We, we just do it in more subtle ways. We just keep pouring money into that passion or that hobby or that goal. Being, being consumed for God's honor and not your own comfort or your convenience or your security will always cost you something, friend. Always. It, it cost David something big time in Psalm 69. Verse 10, when I wept, David says, and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. I, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. I mean, translation, you know, what, what was he hearing, right? As he was seeking to, be, seeking to live for the honor of God's name, to glorify God in his life. Well, what was he hearing around him? I mean, people were saying things like, David, just come on, man. Why, why are you always talking about this sin stuff so seriously? What, what, what's with all the confession and all the repentance and all this sorrow over areas of remaining ungodliness in your life? I mean, David, a, a little religion is it's just fine, right? I mean, even good, it'll make you well-rounded, but dude, this, this is going too far. You need to lighten up. Have a cold one. God isn't that important, David. To which the prophet Nahum says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken in pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What, what's Jesus' example, what's David's experience? What's the prophet's words here? Screaming, friends. It's all telling us that the blessing of God is reserved for those who are devoted to the honor of God. Which is why Jesus didn't make peace with sin. Okay, he, he didn't turn a blind eye to sin. He took decisive action against sin for the honor of God's name. He was violently and fiercely committed to cleansing the dwelling place of God from every vestige of ungodliness. And if you are a Christian, hear this. You are that dwelling place in an individual sense. 
And if you are a covenant member of a church, like ours, guess what? We are God's dwelling place. In a corporate sense, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple? You, Christian, our church is holy and you are that temple. And so so think about this. Whenever we sin, what are we really doing? We're not just slipping up or, you know, we all make mistakes. We do. But what's really going on? Whenever we disobey God's law, we are taking what is holy and sacred, our bodies, our souls, and we are bending them, we are directing them, we are sending them running after our priorities and purposes instead of the Lord. We're desecrating the temple. So think, friend, about about your attitude right now. What's, What's your attitude in your life right now toward sin in your heart? Or sin in your life? Are, are you doing whatever it takes? Okay, no matter how crazy or radical it might appear to you or other people say you're being, remember David, right? Are, are you doing whatever it takes to put that sin to death? Or, or consider the, the holiness and purity of our church. Are, are you praying that God would make your brothers and sisters in Christ here more like Jesus? Or are you just kind of going on your narrow way, happy to receive and receive and consume on Sunday, but really not engaged in the cause of our holiness? Are you praying for them? Or are you willing to lovingly correct your brothers or sisters? If you see them wandering from the path of God's commands, do you genuinely rejoice? And do you speak up and say something where you see someone growing in godliness? Friends, friends, the good news of Jesus is that that he's more committed to cleansing us today, both individually and corporately, than he was to cleansing the temple physically back in that day. And the reason for that is that something has happened since that day that gives us an even greater assurance of his power to save So point one is the obedient son. Jesus was zealous for God's honor. Point two, as the true temple, Jesus vindicated God's word. He was zealous for God's honor, the obedient son. But as the true temple, we're going to think about this. He vindicated God's word. Look at verse 18, the second section here. Needless to say, after Jesus demoed the place, the Jewish religious leaders didn't walk up to him and say, you know, thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for, for your stellar example of honoring God. No, no they, they heaped reproach on him the way David got reproach. Because if you're willing to abandon living for yourself and live for the honor of God's name, that's what happens. Because that doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world didn't make sense in the eyes of the religious leaders. Verse 18, what sign do you show us 
for doing these things? That wasn't a neutral question. That, that was a loaded question, okay? Translation, Jesus, prove to us that you have the credentials, you have the authority to come in here and start throwing stuff around and telling people what to do. Prove it. And unless you give us some piece of convincing supernatural evidence, a sign that, that passes muster in the court of our own minds, because we are evaluating and judging you right now, we won't believe you. And that question, the attitude behind that, that, that reveals the extent, friends, to which they had domesticated God, doesn't it? Because little did they know that even as they asked that, who, who was standing right in front of them? God was standing in front of them. What sign do you give us that we might believe in you, God? No idea. They should have been on their faces. They, they should have been weeping over the desecration of God's house that the Lord had entrusted into their keeping. And instead of that, they were all bent out of shape over, God proved to us we should believe in you. We're willing to think about it if you will deign to enter the court of our judgment and opinion. And Jesus in his great mercy said something. And it wasn't what they deserved because he spoke a word of truth and mercy. Look at verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up, guys. You know, to which they said what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. Ha ha, Jesus. <laughs> hey, by the way, let me just let you know something. This temple has been under construction, Herod's temple, for 46 years. It's not even done being built yet. And you're telling us that if we demo it, you, single-handedly, will rebuild it in three days. I mean, the fact they don't say anything else after Jesus' answer is, is just kind of like the mic drop. Yeah, we, we thought you were nuts. You're nuts. You're crazy. But look at verse 21. What do they not know? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Isn't it amazing how Jesus was just as misunderstood in the first century as he is today? <laughs> you realize that? He's always been misunderstood. That the Jews failed to grasp that, that the entire nature of God's presence among his people was changing. Okay, because for centuries, God had made himself known through, through a particular place, okay? The, the tabernacle, that tent that Israel camped around, and, and then the temple in Jerusalem was what? It was the dwelling place of God on the earth. It was the locus, it was the center of his manifest presence, the object of true worship and piety. It was, it was the place where men communed with their maker. But what, what did they miss? That, that all of those places, the tabernacle, the temple, they were just types of the one who was to come. 
Because what happened when the eternal son of God became God incarnate and and took on flesh as an embryo in Mary's womb, that place became a person. Think about this. Jesus became the temple of God, not, not because his body was some sort of container for God or he was indwelt by God in some special way that the rest of us haven't yet attained to. No, he, he was the temple because he was God, right? So once God's people went to the temple to worship him, now we worship God by trusting and obeying Jesus, Okay, once God's people went to the temple to understand what he was like, now we understand God by coming to know Jesus. Once God's people went to the temple to atone for their sins through sacrifice, now we receive the gift of forgiveness once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now I could go on with that, right? In other words, everything that the temple was and represented, Jesus is and fulfilled. And and so Edward Clink rightly concludes, listen to this, God is not to be found in any religious practice or place. There are not multiple paths to God, friends. Discovering the joy of relationship with God is not a choose-your-own-adventure book. He is only found through Christ. Alone. which raises a, a good question among thoughtful people, okay? Because maybe you hear, me, you hear me say that, you think, okay, well, how do we know that? Well, why should we place exclusive confidence in Jesus for knowing God and, and enjoying relationship with him? Well, the simple answer is because no one else can do for us what Jesus did. <laughs> no other human being in the history of the world has ever what? raised themselves from the grave. Nobody else has ever done that. But Jesus did it because he's God. Right? Because the imperishable nature and the, the infinite worth of his life, what did it do? It exceeded the immeasurable debt of our sin for which he died. So, so what does the resurrection prove? It proves, friend, that, that the greatest uncleanness Okay, the greatest wickedness in the world. What's that? It's not the animals in the temple. It's the sin in our hearts. That is no match for the power of God to save. that's, That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to us. And we can take heart in that. Because you can't overcome the ungodliness within you. But guess who can? Jesus can. And he's delivered you from the guilt of sin, Christian. He's delivered you from the power of sin. He's he's poured his spirit into your heart, empowering you to fight for godliness. And guess what else? Guaranteeing that one day, the presence of sin is gonna be gone from your life. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. This isn't a prayer. This is a promise. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Period. (laughs) 
And so Christian, please hear this. No, No matter how great your struggle with sin is, no matter how great it is, no matter how much you're sitting there right now thinking, Matthew, you don't know the half of what I'm doing. Know this, you are not a lost cause. You're you're not, if you're in Christ, you you are not a hopeless rebel. You, You have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ flowing through your veins. That's who you are. God's promised to sanctify you completely. And when he makes a promise, friend, he keeps a promise. Just like he kept his promise in verse 19 to rise from the grave. And in fact, it's his resurrection that ultimately vindicates the authority of Jesus' words. And his disciples, they recognize that. They recognize that later on, that the word of the living temple, God in in human flesh was worthy of their trust, no less than the words of scripture. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, they, his disciples, believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The scripture, Bible, and the words that Jesus had spoken. What, What are they doing? They are treating them as equally authoritative. Interchangeable. In that sense. In other words, it wasn't like you, you've got the Bible over here, you know. There's resurrection, they recognize this. You, you don't have the Bible over here kind of filled with all that men think about God. And then Jesus comes on the scene, dun, 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 and we actually get to hear from God himself. No, not at all, right? Not at all. The word inspired carries the same authority as the word incarnate. And that authority is an abiding truthfulness. That means there's there's no space in Christianity for, for believing Jesus, but taking issue with some portion of scripture. Or saying, I'm following Jesus when you willfully persevere in disobeying some part of his word. There's no space in Christianity for that because to trust Jesus is to trust God's word because his resurrection vindicates God's word. Point number three, as a searcher of hearts, Jesus exercised God's wisdom. He exercised God's wisdom. Look at at verses 23 through 25 with me. To try, to try to connect all this in, their, in our minds. Think of it this way, okay? Jesus' actions in the temple, the first part, tell us what he came to do. Okay, to cleanse our hearts that we might become a dwelling place fit for God. Jesus' exchange with the Jews in the second part of this passage reveal the power he has to do that, right? He's, he's the crucified and risen son of God whose word is authoritative and true. And then John's kind of editorial postscript or comment here, insight at the very end, verses 23 to 25, tells us why Jesus is uniquely qualified to get that cleansing work done. Why is that? Because he knows exactly who we really are on the inside. Do you see that? He's here to cleanse because we need it. He's able and faithful and mighty to cleanse because this is the true temple. He's the 
crucified and resurrected son of God. And he knows exactly where we need to be cleansed because he knows everything about us. And if you look at verse 23, you might think on first read that this is a kind of example of smashing success in gospel ministry. Many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs or miracles that he was doing, but but Jesus' response in verse 24 suggests what? That their expression of faith wasn't actually the genuine article, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In the original language, it's it's actually a wordplay. Explicitly, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Back and forth. But in contrast, if if you look to John 14, 24, Jesus actually promises later, what? That if anyone truly believes in him and chooses to follow him, my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. If anyone truly believes in me. So so what do we learn there, friends? When, When genuine faith in Jesus is present, the relationship is reciprocal. It runs both ways between us and the father. Not not in the sense that Jesus ever trusts us the way we are called to trust him, but in the sense that Jesus fully and unreservedly gives himself to us in response to genuine saving faith. And so the end result of that is, is what? An intimate relationship between us and God through faith in Jesus that actually reflects the intimacy that Jesus himself has with his father. But that's not what was happening here. That's not the case here. Feelings were excited. Lips were professing, but but hearts were not renewed. I I think Leon Morris's observation here is really insightful. To believe on the basis of the signs is to take as basic something we can see and to which we give weight on the basis of our experience. Jesus calls people to trust him for what he is not because he passes the test that we set. So important. The the crowds might have fooled a mortal man, but they couldn't fool the immortal God. And this isn't the first time that that John and his gospel is going to attribute a power to Jesus that the entire Old Testament reserves for God himself. 1 Kings 8.39, for you, you only... Know, Lord, the hearts of all the children of mankind. Or Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. Why, Why did Jesus need no one to bear witness about men? Look at verse 25, because he himself knew what was in man. He knew it. And so, friend, you might, your peers your parents, even your pastors might not know who you really are on the inside. But guess what? Jesus knows. He knows your desires. He knows your thoughts. He knows your ambitions. He he knows whether your professed faith in him is true or a lie. And listen, that's a tremendous comfort to the believer. Why? Because it means we don't have to convince Jesus that we really do trust him. You realize that? It's it's not like, Jesus, I trust you. Mm, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Prove it to me. No, he he knows us, friends. 
He knows your heart and rejoices in even the smallest mustard seed of faith. You don't have to sell him on that. Praise God. But that is also a sobering warning to unbelievers. Because it doesn't matter how much you, you look like a Christian or talk like a Christian. Jesus knows what's really going on. You, you can't hide from him, friend. But, but here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to try. You can't hide from him, but you don't have to try. Why? Because instead of playing games, you can cry out to him for mercy. Or instead of choosing hypocrisy, you can run to him for salvation because Jesus already knows everything that needs to be cleansed, right? Everything that needs to be forsaken, everything that needs to be removed from your heart so you can become a dwelling place fit for God. As the searcher of hearts, Jesus exercised God's wisdom. And that leaves us in, in closing with a very simple, straightforward question, okay? How will you respond to Jesus? That's the question. How are you going to respond to Jesus? He came to cleanse our hearts that we might become a dwelling place fit for God. He is eager to cleanse you. He is able to cleanse you. And he knows exactly where you most need him to cleanse you. And so the question is this, will you humble yourself and ask him to change your heart? Or, or will you keep trying to, to make your life work on your own? That There is no better joy, friend, than the joy of drawing near to God through Jesus and being cleansed from the sin that so easily entangles so that we can walk and run in the path of righteousness. There is no better joy than that on this earth. So I exhort you to draw near to God through Jesus right now. To the searcher of hearts, to the true temple, to the obedient son, by making David's prayer at the end of Psalm 139 your own. If you would close your eyes, pray this with me in your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in a way everlasting. Lord Jesus, we need you to do that. We need you to cleanse our hearts the way you cleanse that temple. Lord, we cannot receive the wine of your favor and blessing. Unless you first remove and clear out and deliver and cleanse us from everything that prevents us from living for you. So we pray you would do that, that you would give us a zeal to participate, cooperate in that work. We thank you for how you as the crucified and resurrected one prove that you are able and mighty and committed and faithful to do that cleansing work. No matter how long we've been struggling. And we thank you that when we come to you and, and don't even know how to 
explain half of the mess that's inside us. We can simply say, Lord Jesus, you know me. Please help. You know my heart. Please cleanse me. And that you will never forsake, Father, those who come and ask you to do with sincerity and humility what you are faithful to do. We thank you for that in your son's name. Pray you would do that now even as we sing. Amen.